Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, uh, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Jay Ferguson, Patrick Pentland, Chris Murphy, and Andrew Scott, collectively known as Salona. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob, this is Ken. Ken, how many times have you listened to In the Movies this week? I'm not lying, I've listened to it three times. I've listened to Pretty Together this week three times. That's who you're dealing with, everybody. All right. Are you ready to strap in? Let's do this. We've got a fun show this week, but we first obviously want to mention uh, you got to listen to the Murder Records podcast if you haven't already. I mean, yeah. you can't be listening to this and not that. So, I mean, we're assuming you've heard it, but great podcast. And Chris actually has started the Murder Records Instagram account uh, where he's been going back and posting the artwork and some cool information about each of the murder uh, releases. So, definitely subscribe to that if you're not. I don't know how you're not already, but uh, super great. You'll see both Ken and myself gushing in the comments, of course. <laughs> Um, I think I think as of today we're up to like a Great Pacific Ocean, so that'll That's kind right. of give you yeah. an idea of when we yeah. recorded this. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> which is a great. I love that album. I've got the picture disc. It's such a classic. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, let's. Was there anything you wanted to add there, Ken? No, I think. Well, you know, it's just really important for us in this podcast to know that our dozens of subscribers are happy with the content that we're dealing with. So if you do have a chance, please feel free to rate us. And, and review us on your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to Sloancast. You know, this helps us just keep motivated to continue churning out these episodes for you guys. When we started this podcast a few months ago, we were kind of doing it for ourselves, to be honest, because we felt as though this band deserved, you know, a, a, sor- a source of musical commentary that would live for posterity uh, and the degree of detail that other bands deserve <laughs> fabcast um but we were pleasantly surprised by the reception that we've got by uh, the great fans of this band so rate review and subscribe and we'll keep churning content out for you guys yeah big thanks to everybody who's listening and everybody who's following us on instagram obviously if you checked out the youtube channel as well you know thank you for doing that and uh yeah it's an honor to be here we love uh, talking about sloan as you can tell we're gonna do more of that today so let's get uh, let's do it to it, shall we? Nice. An interesting uh, topic this week. Uh, Ken and I were trying to discuss. This is sort. Of, this is going to be sort of more of a uh, just a discussion between Ken and myself. Uh, I can just hear people turning the episode off now. But anyway, um, I found when my in my uh, digging through my archives, as it were, a funny little FAQ. I don't know where this would. I mean, we've been kind of speculating that it might have been on their official website at the time. This is 1997, and I'm getting the impression yeah. that this is later in 97, probably around the same time as the ECMAs. That's uh, right. It's a Sloan yeah. FAQ from their from their website in 97, featuring Chris, where he He's taking online questions, and we thought it would be a lot of fun to just read through this FAQ from 97, the answers and, uh, sorry, the questions and Chris's answers, obviously, and sort of reflect and see, you know, what came true, who was he referring to, uh, some fun there. So uh, maybe we can get into that. What do you think, man? Definitely. And just to, just to kind of paint the picture as to where we're at in 97, for for those of you who are listening and aren't, you know, innately familiar with, with the timeline, uh, end of 97 is when the st- sessions on Navy Blues start, and beginning of 97 is when the American release of One Chord to Another is happening, uh, followed by an ensuing U.S. tour. So there's a lot of talk here about the party album that was done with the Enclave release in the States, uh, and there's some, there's some discussion about the shows. And of course, 97, for those of you who are old enough to remember, was the time when the internet and band websites were, were, were really burgeoning, and people were getting out there and leaving comments and guest books and 
you know, bands were doing FAQs and Q and A's and stuff. So if you were around at this point in time, and if you were like myself, a common lurker on the Sloan.a-d.n website or whatever it was before the sloanmusic.com website was out, um, then I'm sure you'll appreciate this content. It's interesting. I might have, I must have copied this into a doc because it has my dad's letterhead on it <laughs> when I printed it off. And I just printed these pages of FAQ Q&A. Like, this was like my Bible, you know, in 97. I'm just like, I, I'm trying to consume as much Sloan as yeah. humanly possible. Yeah. And at this point, I, I probably have the Enclave release of, of uh, One Chord. I've got... I think I've probably at that point got the back catalog. Um, but I'm just trying to consume as much as I can. And I'm about to be hit over the head in 98 with Navy Blues and the I&I and, and all that stuff. And it's going to kick into high gear if it wasn't already. But yeah. And we talked about that at length in the first two episodes. Um, but anyway, let's get into this fun little FAQ here. So the commenters will be just, some of them have their, some, some of them sign their name. Um, some of them don't. And we'll follow up each comment with Chris's response. So I think Ken's going to take the questions here and I'll be the Murph uh, imposter here. And I'll put on my Bullworth mask, as it were, and uh, I'll be Chris here answering the questions, and we'll kind of speculate on what the heck he's talking about. Let's hit it. All right. First question from the commenter. Does anyone know when G, the G turns to D video will be out? I completely... Now, we'll get to Chris's comment in a second, but here we go. <laughs> Running off the rails already. I had completely forgotten that there was supposed to be yeah. a G turns to D video or whatever, that it was even talked about that it was the next single in my digging through my stuff, I found my G turns to D CD single, which I'd also forgotten I had. Nice. Um, and I don't remember where I got it. There, there, there was a, there was a great, there was a Sam, the record man in Kitchener where I, where I grew up and there was another record store, which the name is escaping me now. Um, I know encore obviously, but there was another, oh, I think it was Dr. Disc maybe mm-hmm. in Kitchener. And uh, I got a lot of stuff there, but I think that I might've gotten the G turns to D from, uh, I worked at a radio station called CKWR, and I hope nobody calls the cops on me now, like, you know, 25 years later. But um, I totally swiped a bunch of CDs from their collection. My my friend Cam and I had like a late night weekend show right. for like a couple of months. And we would just, we were supposed to play one format and we played whatever. And I remember take, I, it's very possible that I took the Cheater City single from there. So that's probably why it didn't perform as a single or, you know, didn't have much legs because I took the one copy there. It didn't perform in Kitchener anyway. But, well, that, that feels, uh, and I also have, I mean, that, 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 that feels like a suitable answer to this question then, right? The video never came out because the what happens, wasn't getting yeah. video airplay. Rob took it from the CD from the radio station. Damn it. And I, and I will say, I have some CDs in my collection that say CKWR on the inside, yeah. uh, notably the two Zampano albums, right. which, uh, I don't know, in, in line with Chris's murder Instagram, I've been kind of go, just going through a murder renaissance myself. I'm just like re-listening to everything and loving it. And so I've just been going fucking crazy for those damn Zampano albums, man. God. <laughs> I don't know if you ever got if you ever got into new pornographers or anything like they're bit, fine and I love bit. Kurt Dahl as a drummer. Yeah, they got some good songs, but God, I, I mean, like when I look at new pornographers now, they kind of seem a little like up their own ass or whatever. I don't know; they just seem a little pretentious. Yeah, but fuck, man, Carl Newman in Zampano in the '90s is just oh, it's spot on. And I actually shout out to our buddy uh, who does the um, Raven Drill podcast. If anybody hasn't listened to that, well, listen, we're on question one and we haven't even read the fucking answer yet. Holy shit. This, uh, this is going to be a three-parter. Later, man. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there's a, there's a great podcast called Raven Drool. It's a nineties can rock. If you haven't heard it, the latest episode is great. Uh, Grapes of wrath. And they actually talked to Kevin Kane about producing the first, some panel album. Right. Uh, look what the rookie did. 
So anyway, I'm sorry. I digressed so much. Holy shit. I'll try to keep it in line. Chris's answer to, does anyone know when Dieterns D video will be out? He says, he says, alas, never. We were thinking about doing one for a while. We had really good luck at Much Music last year, but we thought we all thought that The Lines You Mend uh, was so good and didn't do so well as the others, um, which I didn't really think. I thought that Lines You Mend yeah. was pretty good as a video. But anyway, um, also, since we run our own label, videos get paid for out of our own pockets, and they're not cheap. We wanted to recreate a scene from the movie Blow Up, which featured the Yardbirds. Uh, Duotang, the two-piece from Winnipeg, beat us to it, although I never saw their video. Um, so this is interesting. So I was checking out Blow Up, and there is a scene in the movie with the Yardbirds with the young Jimmy Page. Oh, really? Because uh, obviously the new Yardbirds became Led Zeppelin. Right, true. Uh, and it's in, it, in the scene, essentially, for those who haven't seen it, uh, and I haven't seen it, I've just seen the scene. <laughs> Somebody's clutching their pearls right now somewhere. But anyway, the main character seems to kind of come into a rock club, and he's walking around, and there's maybe a cut, and it's, it's full of people, and the band's playing, the Yardbirds are playing on stage, and they're playing a song, interestingly enough, not that unlike G turns to D, it's probably the same BPM. Okay. Beats for minute. Right. Uh, it's kind of like an upbeat rocker. Like it's not, you know, like a 60s psychedelic song or something. It's kind of like it's got some meat to it. Yeah. And, um, main character walks in and there's a bunch of people in the club, but they're all kind of just standing really stoically and, they're kind of not really responding to the band considering how like rocking the band is the audience sure. is just sort of like, maybe it's like a privilege reference or something, but everybody's just sort of brainwashed. And, uh, there are a couple of people who are kind of dancing a little bit, but the main character walks through the audience and he kind of goes up to the middle of the crowd. And the, one of the, one of the guitarists in the Yardbirds, his guitar amp is making kind of, it's cutting out and he's getting upset with it. And he starts just destroying his guitar right. on the amp. And then he smashes it on the floor right. and he throws the pieces of his guitar into the crowd. And then the crowd comes alive and everybody just goes oh, fucking bananas. Wow. And the main character ends up with the guitar right. and takes it outside and so on. Right. And so it's an interesting thought. It, was, it would have been, I, I assume that in the Sloan version of this, in the G turns to D version, I assume Jay would maybe be the one sure. smashing his guitar. Right. Yeah, and also in the video, the, the Yardbirds member is Stage J. Okay. So he's Stage yeah, left. sure. Yeah. And uh, so it makes sense that it would be J. So, you know, I can we can only speculate as to which guitar J may have smashed. One of the two uh, Fender Telecaster Thin Lines. Because there, there's a oh, okay. there's a cutaway, and you have a little bit of a soft spot to get to get the first little break in, and you put your foot right through the middle That's of it. Right. Perfect, I got it. Okay, that's cool. And so, yeah, so it would need to to see that they may have used this. And I know the the video that Chris is referencing here uh, by Duotang is for a song called "Slow Down." So if you uh, go to YouTube, you can see both the clip of the Yardbirds in "Blow Up" and you can find the video of "Slow Down" by Duotang. Uh, the Duotang video doesn't really pay homage to the movie right. that directly it's 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 got a little in common but um anyway yeah so very cool there there once upon a time there was a g turns to d video concept and there you have it you know this i can't help but thinking you know if if g turns to d would have had enough of a push behind it and we're talking about a point in time when the band had already released a couple of singles from one core to another so i think that there is probably a little bit of you know, there was. There, I'm not sure that the Canadian public was as receptive for a third Sloan single from one chord to another, but I can't help but think how well this song could have performed as a single if there was enough of a push behind it, because you have everything that you need mm. for a great rock song, especially a great kind of like, you know, the 96, we're talking about the, the year maybe after the real second British invasion wave kind of hit pop radio in, in, in Canada. Mm. So like Blur and Oasis and bands like that 
being front and center in everybody's conscience and g turns to d i think could 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 hold its own against any of those guys on the radio i mean i want to say this is the year of song two you know by blur i think it's either 95 um, or 96 it yeah be, yeah yeah it, it would have been in there it's from the self-titled blur album and you know you got a fuzzed out rocker i mean i think g turns to d and blur I, I mean i prefer g turns to d obviously um but i mean those two songs have a bit in common both kind of upbeat kind of fuzzed out yeah and uh is it fair to assume that the the player he's referring to in the song is Jennifer Pierce from jail. Could he show her a few chords? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about when a lot of the material that Chris is getting, um, a, a lot of the, a lot of the subject matter from which Chris is getting his musical material is actually sort of end of eighties, early nineties, even into the mid to late nineties. So, you know, it could be Jenny Pierce from, you know, 88, 89, whatever that would have been. Yeah, I mean, we can speculate speculate rather about his love life. I mean, Jay's been, as we've been talking about, Jay's, you know, he's singing about those Halifax dances in the mid-80s, yeah. Yeah. you know, 20 years into the band's career. Right, so. right. Uh, not that I'm complaining, I love it. No, your youth has a lasting <laughs> has a lasting influence on, I think, a lot of your artistic sensibilities. But these points will continue to pop up during our analysis of these FAQs. So let's hop over to question number two. Um, this should be a, an interesting one to reflect on from a 2020 perspective. Sloan, mm-hmm. I know it's a long shot, but are you planning any tours to Australia? I know I would appreciate it. Thanks, Jono. And I won't regale you with John Australian just... accent imitation. Oh, dude, we should both try it. I've got a pretty good one. Anyway, Jono, a great Australian name. Quick sidebar. This is going to be a fun episode, everybody. We're just going to like shoot the shit. But uh, I worked at Best Buy like 20 years ago. And I used to f- have a funny little game with my coworkers where we would like... Basically, I worked in the music department, but they started making us sell like MP3 players and stuff like that, and just technology that at the time I didn't necessarily know a whole ton Zip about. I wasn't super interested in, but yeah, stuff like that, and like computer stuff. And so when I didn't know something about a product, I would talk about it in us in an Australian accent and distract the customer, and they would they would kind of give me the benefit of the doubt, you know. So if I was talking about like an MP3 player, like a sports watch, you know, I'd be saying, you know, it works. It goes right in your arm there, you know. And if you're going to be listening to like, you know, ACDC or whatever, you know, you could just put it on there. You know, the sweat it won't get into the parts. And I'd just kind of shoot the shit like that. And everybody's like, oh yeah, okay, so that's where you put it. Okay, cool, you know. Anyway, so Jono, um, the question was, sorry, I'm every question I'm just like barfing all over the place here but he talks about touring australia and chris says we were trying to organize a trip to japan this past august which may well have brought us to japan he means australia our american label the enclave went under just before so our funding fell through the enclave did convince virgin to put out one court to another in japan but we haven't had a release in australia since smeared so that's the other factor plus it's far and there are people in the band who aren't too jazzed about 24-hour flight but we all think it would be good for us. Right. So, so interestingly enough, I mean, so, so they do make it to Australia two years later, right? Yeah. 99 was their first Australian tour in quotes. Although I think there were two, two or three shows at three at, at most. That's a tour. It's a tour. a tour. And and they made it back in 2007 as part of the latter run of the Never Hear the End of It tour. So they've been there twice. 99, mm. The 99 tour resulted in the concert bootleg that was released on vinyl a few years ago, um, which I... Do have? I was just thinking. I don't have. I don't have the Japan concert bootleg. I do have the Australia '99 bootleg, which is pretty much just uh, between the bridges content. 
um, mm. which is, yeah, you know, a really great recording. If anybody, uh, if anybody, well, you can't get the album anymore. Um, but for those of you who are in the know, the quality of this bootleg is just fantastic. And it seems as though Australia has al- always had sort of a very niche Sloan fan group. I've actually got the Australia bootleg right here. Oh, there it is. So what do we got? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you're right. Predominantly uh, between the bridges. So I recall having watched um, Much East and the interviewer was going to see Andrew at, at his mother's home. And uh, they were talking about what's next for them. The next thing for them was to fly to Australia and and do some shows there. And Andrew, I think, was was pretty psyched about maybe going into a cage with some great white sharks. I doubt that that ever, you know, ever actually happened. Um, but seems like a very, <laughs> seems like a very Andrew thing to do. He would have got some up and close. I, I imagine if he did go swimming with sharks, he would have got one of those waterproof cameras. And, uh, you know, he has a stash of like 200 up close pictures that he's using for his paintings. I mean, cause as, as far as I know, it, I don't know if he'd started doing the shark paintings at this point. It would have been around that point. I know by, yeah, because I know in 2001, I went to see a show on Queen Street in Toronto, and I think, oh, maybe that was just the dogs. Anyway. Yeah. Who knows? But anyway, yeah, I mean, if, if anybody's going in a shark cage, it's Andrew Scott, and I think if you're in the water with him, if I'm the shark, I'm the one scared out of my mind. Right? I'm like, don't, that, you know, that guy's just shooting me daggers with his eyes. Around, That's right. You know? The good looks are in it. Um, you mentioned, <laughs> you you mentioned the sharks are just like, man, that guy's handsome. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and what is Chris, what is Chris's response to if you're mediocre? He says, I'm fucking Quasimodo. Anyway, yeah. yeah. You mentioned, an, you mentioned an Australian. I had a friend on the message board at the time named Stina, who I think her full name was Christina, but she went by Stina and we were kind of pen pals there. She would send me photos of the guys in Australia and I would send her pictures of shows that I'd seen here. And I think I still have some pictures of hers. I've got to dig those out. It's her with like Mike Nelson and Jay and the guys. Oh. And she actually sent me a poster of the of the couple of us. Like they had like a really great looking. It was like between the bridges uh, look. It's like, but it's silver instead of gray. And it's it's I think it's the guys sitting in like barbershop chairs or something. I'll try to find it and take a photo of it for for, for the gram. But uh, that's a little art, uh, artifact that I have, and I keep meaning to like find it and frame it and put it on the wall. Um, it's such a great one. And um, I remember her actually also getting me into UMI, uh, who were a band that were thanked I think in the Navy Blues liners, which would make sense. I think in on that Australian tour, the guys may have either played with or interacted with UMI and okay, okay, uh, who were kind of at the time kind of not the Australian. Australian Sloan, but they were certainly playing like that's like, you know, more old timey, not old kind of music. Uh, <laughs> I just mean like, not, not, I want to say, well, the word I'm looking for is like kind of more retro sounding, right. you know, like classic rock right. as opposed to whatever else was going on right. in 99. Like they weren't playing, music. you know, Western saloon piano or something. <laughs> exactly. They weren't playing Chester the Molester. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so you and I, I kind of got into that. So the funny thing about this answer here where he says, um, some people in the band aren't too jazzed with a 24 hour flight. Can we rule out Andrew? Because he seems excited to go to Australia. Hmm. Is he brooding about the 24-hour flight in 97, or is that Patrick? Uh, or is it Jay? You know, it might be a collective uh, you know, anxiety over being over the Pacific Ocean, which I think I, I would share. <laughs> so, moving along. Guys, we're not even halfway through page one. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip some questions. Hi, does anyone know if Sloan was self-taught? Thanks, and keep Sloaning. 
Keep Sloaning. That's how we're going to fucking sign off every episode from now on. I'm putting it in the notes. Here we go. Keep Sloaning. We got to say that at the end of every show. Okay. If anybody doesn't like it, go start. I actually, I feel as though, I feel as though I might know who this question came from, but continue with you. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. The answer from Chris regarding whether the band are self-taught, he says, as musicians, we are primarily self-taught. Jay and I, Chris, had a few guitar lessons when we were in high school and Patrick may have as well. I also took percussion lessons in junior high, but was kicked out for not bringing my music. I can relate to that, but I didn't want to play xylophone. No kidding. I just wanted to play drums. I wish I had learned to read music now. That's the other thing. None of us can read music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, this is, this is, I think the typical sort of the typical resume for pretty much any nineties, uh, guitar band member is sort of the, well, my parents wanted me to take piano lessons, but I flunked out and, uh, we just taught ourselves power chords and whatever. Uh, and then we, we worked our way in. So, you know, interesting. He doesn't mention Andrew who, also doesn't have any kind of formal musical training but his father was a drummer so there was some musical lineage taking place there and you know patrick patrick's yeah. father as well a great musician yep absolutely so i mean it's in the it's in the genes as it were and uh so yeah very cool uh obviously the guy's not self-taught but i mean you know i, I obviously they're great the way they are and it's i'm self-taught myself and not like i'm comparing myself but uh um, I don't know. When I was in school, there were guys who played drums. I was in band as well. And the guys who were in like drum corps, they could play technically and stuff. Like I'm I've never been a fan of guys like Mike Mike Portnoy and shit like that, mm-hmm. where they're just like basically like a, a robot, right. you know? Yeah. Some of it's kind of interesting to to watch because it's so technical or whatever, but right. like I don't know, just that to my ears it just sounds like bleh. Just sounds like the Charlie Brown parents. Oh, I thought and, I thought you were gonna say it just sounds like Charlie Watts, because you know. He Charlie Watts. Robot, well, Charlie Watts. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie Watts making his second appearance on a Sloancast episode. Uh, <laughs> he was on the Aaron. Uh, he was on the Aaron episode last time. That's right. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Oh, Charlie Watts is. I would say has more in common with Andrew and Chris in that he's like a feel guy. You Definitely. Know, like, totally about feel. Definitely. And Chris makes the joke these days about Andrew wanting to just play quieter and quieter. And that's definitely the Charlie thing. He's just got a light touch. That's right, man. Um, He's he's grooving back there. Next question. Help. I can't find the compilation Les Amis de Sloan anywhere. I really want to get a listen of it. So background, um, for those of you who were around in the mid nineties might remember this. There was a compilation. I believe this is the one that we're talking about that the good people of Sloan net and by good people i mean the um the people who's who are residing behind the email addresses uh in the mailing list that had their own bands or that were musically you know musically talented in some way they decided at some point in time to put together a tribute compilation to the band sloan which i find this astounding now looking back 23 years later at this like you you guys are missing 23 years of material by the way but they, uh, <laughs> I, I don't feel as though this ever actually happened. I feel as though the compilation itself was a, uh, it might've been a hoax. Um, it might've been a money grab because I, I was reading through the archives a few years ago and, um, and I recall seeing some messages about, Hey, you know, I submitted my money to get in on this compilation a while back and I haven't gotten any answers what's happening. So that's the background on the Les Amis de Sloan 
compilation. Let's see what Chris has to say about it. Yeah, Chris's answer is, I don't know if that ever got finished. I want a copy if it did. Yeah, I'd want a copy too, man. So that's interesting. So this they're actually referring to a Sloan message board compilation. I might be way off on this one, but I feel as though that's the that's the piece of work they're referring to. There have been a few tribute compilations to the band over the years. And I think the last one that I can really recall was the um, 2000, I'm going to say seven, maybe 2006 um, Sloan message board CD with covers from various Sloan message board members. And, you know, there were some great musicians on there. I myself made an appearance with Marquee in the Moon. Um, I think it was a harpsichord version of Marquee in the Moon, to be honest. I'm not sure that I actually recorded any guitars for it. And it sounds I can't even remember how it sounds. I can only imagine how it sounds. Um, so if anybody's out there from the old SMB and has a copy of this CD compilation that they want to share with us, there will be a reward, or a, a finder's reward in the upper one, one figure area. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get something for it. We'll get you like a chart magazine or something. Um, it's interesting. You Now that you mention this, I'm having a memory here. We all know, or at least some of us would know and recall, uh, Squirrel Al. Yeah, sure. Alan Wong, who was the sort of webmaster of Sloan Hut, which was the other sort of pre- preeminent late 90s you know, Sloan space on the internet. Uh, he's a Boston guy, and I think at the time he was going to be you. Uh, I got a chance to meet him actually a couple of years ago uh, in 2011 in Boston nice. at uh, TT the Bear. So yeah, I finally got to meet him. It was so neat to meet him. And he and I had kind of been, like I said with Stina earlier, kind of pen pals and buddies online. And I remember we recorded a version of Keep On Thinking that I think we were maybe going to submit. Um, my only memory of it is because I didn't have any recording equipment. I just turned my mic on on my computer <laughs> and went across the room and just in my head played keep on thinking without any music, just on drums. And I went back and hit stop and I'm like, did you get that? And he's like, yeah. And I remember him putting guitars and bass on it. I don't know if anybody sang on it, but, uh, bunch of trivia there that nobody needs anyway. Back to the band. Yeah. Not, not the easiest, but I I just wanted to say, I, I'm, I'm squirrel owl. That's gotta be a future guest. Absolutely. Sloan, Sloan hut, by the way, is still alive. So, um, check it out if you haven't already. <laughs> All right. Next question. Sloan, are you guys big Beatles fans? All right. So again, this was 1997. Let's see what Chris has to say. Uh, he says Chris or Jay, Andrew, then Patrick in that order. So in terms of the Beatles hierarchy, in terms of fandom, it goes Chris, J, Andrew, and Patrick. So yeah, I think there you go. No surprise. I would say knowledge by now. All right. Next question. Hi, I was just curious as to why the super friends refer to Chris Murphy as TC. It's in their slideshow liner notes. A few SFZ articles I read in that super friends. Thanks to anyone who can answer the question. I love Sloan. Come back to Halifax soon, boys. Chris says, TC means timing champ. Ian McGettigan from Thrush Hermit named me that for, for my drumming on and off the drums. I'm interested in the rhythm that the guitar, uh, sorry, I'm interested in the rhythm, more interested in the rhythm than the guitar parts usually. The other thing was that the Super Friends didn't much want my name on their record because they didn't want to have it be like our little brother band. Um, so yeah, I've, from this, I remember from this FAQ, Chris being called Timing Champ, and it's interesting, on the Murderer Instagram, there's the Buck 65 uh, Game Tight cassette, right. and in those uh, liners, 
Uh, it says designed by TC and Catrock, which is Chris and Catherine Stockton. Right. There you go. So, it, uh, so yeah. And fingers crossed, another future Sloan yeah. guest as well. Fingers Definitely. It, so it was, it was TC was a nickname for a hot minute in 1997, apparently. For him not to have his own name on there. That's yeah, right. kind of cool. That's right. Next question. And this is a good one. Might be my favorite question in the FAQs. Why did Sloan hate <laughs> playing at Sunfest in Gimli, Manitoba? It was obvious in their concert in Winnipeg at the Rendezvous that they didn't like playing at Manitoba venues. Is it my imagination? Question mark. And Chris says, I personally do not like playing outdoors for several reasons. It doesn't feel very rock and roll. The people there uh, are there to party, get drunk, and the band is inconsequential. Big summer festivals have too many bare feet for my liking, as we are aware from his uh, much East appearances. And they are jock havens. <laughs> also, those big shows have too many bands to keep your attention, and you're always on right before or after some big band that stinks, Bush X. But if you don't, if you if you do it right, you can organize it and play with your friends. He's talking about Edgefest '95, but that's sometimes hard to organize. So it wasn't Sunfest specifically that we didn't enjoy. As for the run, as for the rendezvous, I seem to remember not having such a great show last time. But before that, we played a bunch of shows in Winnipeg that were among my favorite ever. Yeah, it's a lot. And he spells favorite here the American way. Anyway, yeah, sorry, there was no autocorrect in '97, Chris. So. Um... Yeah, the yeah. Th there's a lot to dig your teeth into here, and I think all of us can you know relate to this. Uh, I'm not a big festival guy. I don't like being part of you know the masses, as it were, in in you know in, in, in super humid southern Ontario summer weather. But you have to kind of, as a band with the stature of Sloan in the '90s, you kind of have to make it through the festival circuit because it's the cash cow. So in 96, 97, 95 through maybe 98, especially, they're doing Edge Fest, they're doing Eden Fest, uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff during the summer with you know radio station-sponsored smaller summer festivals. So it's just part of their DNA at that point in time in, in, in the 90s. And some of the best Sloan shows that I've been to have been outdoor shows that doesn't mean they're summer festivals or anything but i'm going to reference two shows here that really stick out in my mind and one was an unlikely candidate it's the 2002 i think it was called the festival of the islands in gananoque ontario gananoque ontario is a town of about maybe maybe six thousand people on the saint lawrence river just west of uh brockville sort of between brockville and kingston and you know I, it's not that far from ottawa so i was able to drive down in a day and uh, and see the show and it was a daytime daytime show i believe so they got the the day and it was me and maybe 25 locals it was ridiculous and it felt like it, they were just playing for me and this was 2002 so it was prior to the release of action pact and they were doing there there wasn't any real pressure to to tour, to tour an album as it were at that point in time so they played stuff off twice removed that i never never heard live before they played stuff off of octa they played stuff off off of between the bridges they i think they had a, a like a sensory deprivation jam that lasted about 20 minutes it was fantastic and they were playing for me basically and a couple a couple other guys so that was great um <laughs> and then the other one and some of you guys might have actually been there because it was a free concert and i recall it was packed was january i think it was january of 2007 in toronto the winter city festival at nathan phillips square 
And mm. favorite for me, obviously, because of Never Hear the End of It, and they were still playing a shit ton of material off of the album at that point in time. It was freezing cold. They were all wearing gloves on stage. And uh, I just recall the energy at that, show, at that show was so positive. I think most of them were having a great time. They were really able to, you know, revel in the... Uh, in, in in the material of the album uh, at that point in time, um, you know, beautiful atmosphere right in the middle of Toronto, you know, with all the skyscrapers looming around you. So that was just a wonderful. And there there are some clips from that show on YouTube now because that was the very beginning of of YouTube. So um, that was the show that went on. I think for they might have played thirty tracks at a festival. You know, a festival. God, I gotta see that. That's on YouTube, concert. man. I gotta see that. Yeah, really great material. I'm, I'm surprised you weren't there, Rob. Me too. Like early, early 2007. I mean, I'm in Toronto. I do recall seeing them play the uh, Winterfest at City Hall a couple years ago. This would have been maybe four or five years right. ago. I went with my wife. It was awesome. We were right at the front, and they had a. It was again freezing cold, um, and right at the end of the set, Chris did his thing where he like gets down. And uh, like he can't rock anymore, and and uh, Kev Kev Rock comes out and puts his jacket on him, and then <laughs> and Chris does the James Brown thing, like yeah, he blasts back up again, and like he he's gonna keep going. It was hilarious. Uh, and I remember also Patrick. This was that was the first time I saw Patrick. Like it was the longest I'd ever seen his hair and his beard. And he looked like if, you know, Jay Mascus was handsome or something. Like it was just like blowing in the wind. He looked like Zeus or something. And it he was, was Rick, quite Rick the sight. Rubin, but, uh, Rick Rubin of the Canadian indie circuit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with, with more hair. And uh, yeah, that was an awesome show. So I, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why I wouldn't have seen that early 2007 show. Dang it. I missed out. I'm going to have to catch up on YouTube with all of you listening. Check it out, guys. The Winter City uh, show in January of 2007, Nathan Phillips Square, Toronto. Um, yeah. So I think it's 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 safe to say that the band themselves wouldn't necessarily relish these gigs, but they're probably just part of the part of the rock star lifestyle in the 1990s. Yeah, it's a great way to to get in front of a whole bunch of people who you're not necessarily gonna who aren't necessarily aware of you or have or have interest to see you live other than seeing you at a festival. And you know, it sucks to be stuck in between like you know glue leg and bush x or whatever but you know you get those those fans get to see you and you know you might turn some of them on so there you that's go. right all right next question this is an administrative question the sloan control murder records if so how do they decide which bands to sign do they have to be from the east coast i like that there is a cool band from <laughs> toronto called cat rocket i think they would be a good addition to murder records I have to admit here that I've definitely pitched bands of mine over the years to be on murder records. It's never happened. It never will. But anyway, everybody's got a dream, right? Everybody's going to have, you know, everybody's got to have something to shoot for. Anyway. um, So Chris's answer is Colin McKenzie is the manager of murder and is basically running the show without him. It would have been, it, it, it would be dead. Mark Brown started by volunteering. And although he still considers himself a volunteer, he's officially not, but doesn't make enough money. Sloan did start it, and we have responsibilities. Mine is primarily artwork, uh, as we're seeing on that murder uh, Instagram account. Sloan as a group is also recording for murder, so that is our other contribution. Jay and Colin and I, Chris, usually decide who's going to be on the label. Usually it doesn't sneak up on us, meaning we have enough stuff and know enough people to put out records forever, and rarely would we sign someone we don't know. Uh, He's being very polite there. 
Most recently, The V's, formerly Jail, put out an EP and will probably be doing a full-length record. The Inbred's record label Tag went under, so we were lucky enough to hook up with them. And the local Rabbits and Sloan want more records uh, out. So right now, right there, that's enough for a while. So he would be referring to, obviously, Navy Blues and Basic Concept from Local Rabbits. Uh, and if anybody is curious about Colin McKenzie and what he looks like, he is the uh, buzz cut, or whatever you call it, like flat top cut. Yeah guy sitting on the inside of the mock-up scale down uh super friends album he's the guy sitting at the desk taking the place of dave marsh there you go yeah well i you know murder murder doesn't have that kind of a staff anymore does it i mean this was a point in time at which they were really cranking through albums and eps and singles and whatever so this is 96 97 um and murder today is a much uh, is a much more agile business, I guess, would be the 2020 term. But, uh, mm. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. This is, uh, for me, a, a typical kind of politely dismissive Chris Murphy internet answer to the question. No, we don't have <laughs> any more room for a, for a new band on our label. And uh, and then yeah, more modern murder releases would include the the reissues and the Gregory McDonald Cola Wars album. That's right, uh, which is like an uh, instrumental electronic music. Um, yeah, so murder records, you know, flying high. I, I kind of get the impression from the murder Instagram account that maybe this will mean more murder re- releases uh, outside of just Sloan stuff. So I guess we'll yeah. see. Um, we shall maybe see. Maybe the Cola Wars thing is. Uh, yeah, maybe it's maybe one of my bands. I'll start. Hey, Ken, we should start a band and we'll get on murder. Let's do it. All right. Hey, we gotta we gotta get a good band name. Yeah, the other men. All right. Next question coming from a uh, a fan in 1997. Does Chris Murphy have a girlfriend? Because I really like him now, Laura S. <laughs> and Chris says, "Really like him now? What does that mean?" Well, this is he, but we're all taken. No one is married, although Andrew considers himself permanently engaged. Um, so Laura S. I'm trying to think of I know who that is. It's not Laura Q. Hmm. But whoever not- she is, she likes Chris now, as opposed yeah. to you know whoever she liked last week. You know, and it's it's important too to recall. I mean, like people you know talk about them being in line with the Beatles and stuff, and everybody makes those comparisons because of the four singers and you know that they play sort of music that's in line with that style and stuff but these guys like the Beatles were also and arguably still are like you know heartthrob status yeah. like you know if you sign into those uh, the Chris Murphy and now the Patrick Pentland solo shows online i mean it's at least 50-50 ladies you know yeah. and there's a reason for that i think it's also obviously the music one thing but uh, you know hey yeah. um all right so- next question just wondering if you could tell me where the pictures from the party album were taken at. Oh, it's really short. He says, uh, Cafe Mocha in Halifax on November 7th, 96, my birthday. All right, here's some inside baseball. Um, Cafe Mocha, for, you know, this is not going to be any news to you Halifax people. Um, in the 90s, Halifax had a fairly burgeoning kind of coffee house scene before the big players like Second Cup and uh, Starbucks took over. but And before the third wave of coffee came and, and took over Halifax again. But there was um, a place, and I believe it's on, yeah, it's Hollis Street downtown. Um, there's a place called Cafe Mocha. And 
it's behind the Roy building. And if people know what the Roy building is, that's, um, well, it was, unfortunately, it's been torn down since a, a very stately red brick sort of uh, neo-Renaissance commercial building on Barrington Street that backs onto Hollis. And the Roy building was also renowned for having a lot of smaller office spaces that were affordable for artists to rent out uh to use as um studios or practice spaces and there were you know i, I personally knew a guy who and this was in the 2000s who was a stop motion animator and had an office in the roy building so there was all kinds of cool stuff going on before it was unfortunately to- torn down and um expensive condos were built in, in on his place so not just toronto um but uh yeah so the the roy building um was i believe also housed either the murder records offices or a practice space of the band in the 90s for a certain point in time and i'm talking early 90s and so the cafe mocha would have been a um you know a geographically very um convenient location for the band to go and just do a you know quick photo shoot and uh cafe mocha turned into after i think it might have closed in the early 2000s it turned into a nightclub then called tribeca which which i also visited a few times they used to have a retro night that was fairly decent but the interior was all this sort of old red brick um, and it might have been the same material that was on the facade of the roy building itself so you go in there and it feels it doesn't really feel like halifax because in halifax there's a bunch of you know a lot of the places are just wooden houses so a lot of the cafes that you're going to are pretty ramshackle but you go in there and it really feels like a bigger city it feels like a you know new york type venue and there used to also be live music at both cafe mocha and at tribeca obviously at a smaller scale because we're talking about a smaller nightclub size venue here um with you know maybe a 20 square meter stage so that's uh cafe mocha and i hadn't realized this until i read the faqs again but that's where the party album pictures came from from the purported sloan party that never really existed <laughs> yeah keeping in the in the tradition of the uh, live at the beach boys party it was uh you know uh a thinly veiled fake live album where the guys had kind of recorded things somewhat off the floor in the studio and then added, you know, an audience of people kind of cheering and making noise and stuff and clinking glasses. And obviously they give away the fact that it's not real during the on the road again, Transona five section where Chris obviously doing like uh, Cheech and Chong or whatever, walks into the bathroom, like, Hey, you're in the band or whatever. And I always assumed after reading the liners for one chord, the Chico T Sanchez character, I always assumed that that's what he sounded like, you know, like, Hey, how's it going guys? You know, whatever. But, uh, anyway. <laughs> but looking at, I'm looking at the party album now and it's the version that comes from the one chord to another box set. So I think there are some, like the images are maybe slightly different than they appear on the CD version, but uh, you know, everybody, the other gang's all here. I see Sandra Kingsley and I see Jennifer Pierce on the front. I see uh, Fiona obviously on the back and uh in terms of people who I recognize uh, and Chris is actually playing his red bass. I don't know what kind of bass this is. Maybe, you know, it looks like a Gretsch. Like the body is like really big. Um, you'll have to, can you put that up to the camera and I'll have this, I'll have a look. It is that one. Oh, right. So it's a, uh, yeah, that, that might actually be a Gibson. Um, they made a hollow body bass for a few years in the sixties, seventies. 
uh, it might be that Gibson hollow body bass that I think it's called an E, yeah, e or whatever. It's, and I recall it being played. The only time I ever saw him play it live was my first show in September 96 on the one core tour. Um, but it makes an appearance here on the party album. And interestingly enough, if you look at the photos and this is a great, this episode is going to turn out tons of Instagram content, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but I'll, I'll post some of the photos from this and, uh, it looks as though the cafe would have had a pretty big vinyl collection. You know, people I assume, because I know there are, even in Toronto here, there's a place on Bloor where you can go in and like put a record on from their collection and just kind of hang out and drink coffee or whatever. So probably in the same vein, but there's a big record collection. Also, I know I didn't really notice this before, but the drums that Andrew is sitting behind, is kind of an incomplete kit. It doesn't look like there's a snare. There's only one symbol. So obviously this is very much staged yeah. and they kind of just have whatever, you know, they've cobbled together a drum kit there to make it appear as though he's playing. Um, but the guys are all smiling and they look very happy and, you know, I'm also stricken by Chris's haircut. I definitely, after seeing them went from having like a part down the center, super long hair to my shoulders. I immediately went to, uh, the salon and I might've even taken one court to another and been like, give me this haircut. And I, I had bangs and I remember even cutting my own bangs at some point. So uh, in 96 or early, early 97, whenever these photos are taken, Chris is in his very short bangs period. Right. Um, so I definitely had, the, I, I had my facsimile of this haircut. There for we go. Sure. Party, the party album influential <laughs> on so many different levels. Uh, All right. This is becoming um, the Rob cast. <laughs> I don't have any. Sorry, I don't have any haircut anecdotes to regale you with. I'm sorry. The, <laughs> all right, next question: Who is Andy Sabola? Parenthesis: Andrew's drums. What pin is Jay wearing in the Good and Everyone video? Why is Chris's flower on the wrong side in the Everything You've Done Wrong video? So three questions. Yeah. Well, the correct answer to the last questions is Chris is dead. <laughs> like the Paul is dead thing. And this is one of the many clues that Chris was uh, replaced with a doppelganger. Um, but Chris's real answer is, I love these type of questions, and so do I. Andy Cibola is the name of the guy that Andrew bought his drums off of. And, and what a classic. I mean, I love the front of that. that Beautiful. Drum, that, uh, Beautiful. So, so, so epic. um he had the drums for a while coax me video um before he put the drum skin back on apparently uh he's 75 years old or something uh we don't know him personally jay has a pin that says back to mono in the video we are dressed as characters in the movie easy rider one of the actors in the film was a legendary record producer phil Spector, whose slogan is back to mono jay is dressed as him and wears this pin as a nod the flower thing has no significance though i wish it did so do I. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I had some fun about a month ago uh, editing for the Sloancast YouTube channel. Just look up, uh, just search Sloancast podcast on YouTube and you'll find it. Um, from a, It's posted, you know, I put, would have posted it at some point in November, December of 2020. And it's uh, a video where you can, I kind of did a side-by-side of the Easy Rider scene with the intro to Good and Everyone. Uh, and it lines up pretty closely. Um, so yeah, some a cool visual in case you've never seen it. Yeah. I mean, the Andy Cibola kit is iconic at this point in time. And, you know, that's um, due in part to its appearance in a couple of, well, I think it was really most prominently featured in the, in the money city, money city maniacs music video and all over the Navy blues tour. So they cracked it out again for the Navy blues um, anniversary tour a couple of years ago, uh, moving into actually this year. Yep. And uh, I may or may not have made a bootleg T-shirt of the Andy Cibola uh, drum head 
drum cover that um, will live in infamy with myself forever because when I went to the show in Victoria last year, there were two drunk guys, and I mean like really drunk guys standing beside me. They were plastered at the very beginning of the show and they saw my t-shirt and I think that they thought that that was Andrew's name. And so they just started mm. screaming out from the very beginning, Andy Cibola, Andy Cibola, I love you, Andy Cibola. Uh, and I was embarrassed. I was so fucking embarrassed. And I think that Patrick, <laughs> like, he gave them one of his glares that that I think then tipped off security and they ended up getting kicked out of the show. But for a moment there, <laughs> I was really paranoid that the band thought that it was me wearing an Andy Cibola t-shirt and just, <laughs> and just screaming, Andy Cibola! Andy Cibola the entire time. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there have been points over the years where somebody has assumed that that's Andrew's name. I think there was maybe even like a heartbeat of a second where I thought that, having seen the the, the kick drum or you know had it did a double take like what's his last name again? But uh, Andrew. Yeah, I love that oh, kick drum yeah. head. They did a, a tote bag. That's a right. Piece yeah. of merch. Uh, a couple years back, and uh, yeah, it's a fave of mine for sure. It's uh, it's a it's a classic piece of uh, Sloan gear. And the back to mono thing, yeah. Sorry, Jay's obviously wearing that uh, Phil Spector pin in the video. Isn't Phil Sp- Phil Spector's motto "Back to Murder"? Oh no, it's back to mono. Okay, right, yeah. Hey, oh yeah, hey. It's uh, six nineteen in the morning here, guys. All right, question. This is a long one, guys. Hi, my brother saw you guys play at UPEI a couple of months ago. Some of my friends went to the show ahead of the time to, uh, ahead of time to meet you. I would just like to say that you guys rock. Are you planning to play any all ages shows on PEI? On PEI is also very PEI. Uh, they would sell out fast. Uh, and also, when did you get starting? When did you guys all get started playing your instruments? Are any of you married? If that's too personal, you don't have to answer. And how old are you guys? I would love to write you guys a letter. So if there's an address where I can write you, I would be really grateful. I would like to congratulate you on achieving such monstrous fame. Bye. I hope you answer my questions. <laughs> Bye, Sloan Rocks. Oh, this is good. There's like 20 exclamation marks. Sloan Rocks. That might be the new sign off on the show, too. Bye, Sloan Rocks. Um, <laughs> I like that this person is going to write them a letter. They're writing them a letter now, kind of, sort of. Uh, Chris answers, this is Chris. I'm from PEI. We have no plans to play anywhere, anywhere, anytime soon. I first picked up a guitar in grade nine and played my first real show in grade 12. No one is married. Andrew turned 30 today. Jay and I are 29 and Patrick's 28. All right. So we, I'm looking at a very large pile of... We can, we can actually pinpoint the date on which this FAQ was composed. Yeah, so he's he's 29 here. I'm definitely looking toward late 97 here. Would he have turned 29 in 97? Well, I mean, yeah, so Cuz was it, it was Yeah, yeah, 97. Cuz it was his 30th birthday in 98, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, exactly. So yeah. Chris would have been turned 29 in November of 97. Uh Andrew would have turned mm-hmm. 30 in November of 97 later in November. And uh yeah. So this is definitely like this is like this time of year, holiday time, 1997. So there we are. We are be, your hosts, Sherlock and Watson. That's right. They might be camping down, actually doing some of the initial Navy Blues sessions at Chemical at this point in time. Think about that. There you go. Wow. <laughs> he ends his comment with, I'm looking at a very large pile of unanswered mail, so don't write us for a while yet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Next question. 
I love Sloan, but I live in USA, so I never hear them on the radio or anything, or get to read anything about them in magazines. Can someone tell me about the guys? The seem so laid back and stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing over the last comment. The seem so laid back and stuff. Dot, 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 dot. Uh, Chris says, we can be rather uptight, believe me, but hopefully approachable and never too serious. This question is too vague, but I can assure you we aren't on the radio up here much either. <laughs> yeah, I remember at that first show that I saw them, uh, the September 96 show, they were definitely very much like get off the stage, go backstage. Like, cause I remember at fed hall where I saw the show, there was this like long sort of like ramp right. from the side of the stage up to almost into the audience kind of, and then into a side door. And, uh, I remember they made that trip very quickly and kind of got it a dodge while right. people were like rushing over to like mob them and stuff. Yeah. And then I think they came out after and kind of met people. But I remember initially being like, Ooh, they're out of here. You know, yeah. Elvis has left the building. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we know them now for hanging around after shows and being very patient and courteous to fans who are telling them about, hey, I'm from Halifax too. That is something that you don't get from a lot of bands. And it's really uh, endeared them, I think, you know, regardless of the level of fandom that you have, it's really endeared them to fans over the generations. So, yeah. They've kind of built in, and I know this is not an intentional thing, but I know, you know, like Andrew, for example, he likes to go to the bus, you know, yeah. right after the show. Yeah. And, you know, Patrick isn't always the easiest to find. So it's kind of like Pokemon, you know, like if you're a real fan and you see it online, you know, uh, whether it's on the Sloan Selection Facebook or whatever, and people are posting photos, um, after a show, it's like, oh, you got all four of them. Whoa. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially nowadays. I mean, earlier... Earlier, you know, I, I recall having spoken to Patrick before and after a couple of shows, even in sort of the early mid two thousands. You know, so earlier, I think when they had more time on their, and they didn't, have, they didn't have families at this point in time, and they weren't worried about their sleep budget or whatever. So I think that they, you know, they were easier to get a hold of. Yeah, I had a, I had an early fan interaction with. I went to see Weezer. I can't remember what year. It would have been like late nineties or something. And I remember going to tower records in Toronto earlier in the day. And I ran into Brian bell, the guitar player, and he was like going into the elevator there or something. And I made the huge mistake of going like, Hey, you're Brian, right? And he looked like he had just murdered somebody and was fleeing the scene. He like got into the elevator and was like, yes. And he just like stared forward. Like, don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Get the fuck away from me. Mm -hmm. And that kind of turned me off from like, speaking to musicians and people who I admired by the way, after that, I, you know, whatever, fuck Weezer. But anyway, um, uh, Mexican strat, Mexican fender, pretty good song, but other than that, whatever. Um, and I remember meeting Patrick, I think for the first time in 2000 in Ottawa at that show that we were both at. I think that was maybe right. the first time I met him. Right. And, uh, he was just kind of hanging out at the front. Like I, that was the crazy thing after that show. I remember him just standing, he was like right at the barricade after the show, kind of just people yeah. watching. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, is it going to be this easy? Do I just walk up to him? And I walk up to him and I'm like, Hey man, I'm super nervous. Obviously great show, you know, like, huh. And I noticed that he had like a Malcolm Young sticker or like trading card or something on his his amp's head and i was like oh cool malcolm young you know i like acdc he's like yeah me too super awkward like i had nothing to talk about and uh, and then i met i didn't meet andrew until like the late 2000s like parallel play era i think oh really so, anyway, okay just yeah, for I mean, everybody who's keeping score hard to get hold of but you know once you do it's all the more rewarding he's like the pikachu basically. he's the pikachu yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right next question 
Are you guys going to re-release any tunes from the Peppermint EP in the future? It would be cool to hear some some more of your old school style. And Chris says, what comes around goes around, and isn't that true these days? And though I don't much listen to Peppermint, we might find ourselves uh, gravitating back there sometime. So here we are in 2020, and uh, yeah, we, we're going to need that smeared box set, which I assume will come with a vinyl version of Peppermint. Uh, you can't so for the visual is me sitting here with two fingers crossed and uh yeah i i would assume that that would be one of the 12 inches in the box set oh so, we gotta hope so you know, i don't know i'm just thinking about that for the first time now i would love that would be so cool to have a peppermint vinyl oh my god so yeah awesome. absolutely all right nice question i had the pleasure of seeing sloan in london with his super friends both were wonderful as usual heard on the edge of the band wasn't too pleased with that night why exactly also, would they ever consider just doing a licensed show? And Chris's response, our last London show was crap. <laughs> it's hard for a band to exist at our in-between level, where we're too big for pubs, but not big enough for auditoriums in a lot of places. If you play a theater with seats, then the cost per person goes way up, and we have fights with the venues about ticket price all the time. But in London, in order to not have an astronomical ticket price which is probably which it probably was anyway i forget anyway we ended up uh, playing a big horse exhibition barn facility the sound was bad and the show just sucked i'm sorry i remember that ottawa the next night was more fun and then varsity the night after that was a, pe- was a piece of crap place to play as well as for licensed shows i'm not opposed to serving booze even though i'm not into it hey but we do not like keeping anyone from attending for those who don't like kids don't have them there you go. And so he was saying that the varsity show was crap was 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 wasn't great. Fuck, I remember that show being so great, but and I'm so I'm super curious if there's like audio or video footage out there of the varsity show, like yeah. an audio boot like I would love to hear that again. I know there's much music showed up and shot some of it, but yeah. uh yeah. Yeah. And he he speaks to an interesting point which is actually relevant in 2020, well, not maybe not in 2020 for obvious reasons, but relevant uh in the modern day as well is that it's the struggle to find the right venue as a band um based on, you know, the profitability of of the venue, uh the ticket prices that you can that you can set and the size of your fan base so this was a point that was relevant to the band in 97 and continues to be relevant to this day and they talk about playing auditoriums that with fixed seats which i think is really not that fun for for a fan but it's often what what they have to kind of compromise on in order to get the right ticket price all right next question I'm totally crazy about Jay from Sloan, and I was wondering if you could tell me what his favorite foods are, his favorite colors, and what he looks for in girls, if you can find out. Maybe even his hobbies. Oh, the doorway to Jay's heart. Hobbies. Uh, Chris says, this is Chris with some skinny on Jay. Foods, carbohydrates, pasta, white bread, and boost protein drink. Colors, forest green, navy blue. Hey, look at that. Uh, and deep maroon, the only colors we can make uh, we can make our t-shirts in. Girls, he likes a girl who enjoys Echo and the Bunnymen and the Cure. <laughs> there you go, ladies. I hope you're taking notes. Echo and the Bunnymen and the Cure. I love that random combination of bands <laughs> that I just feel you know, like I, I can imagine. You know, somebody putting that into their online dating profile. You know, in order to find the key to my heart you have to like echo and the bunny men and the cure (laughs) 
we can go out for a nice day. And this would have been one of those like video Work. dating. Yeah, this would have been like one of those like eighties video dating things where you sit down in front of a camera and be like, "Hi, my name's Rob, and I like you know Sloan and pizza." You know, public access television. <laughs> I just said public, you said public access, which made me think of public enemy. When Chris confirmed the other day on Instagram that the first time all four Sloan guys were in the same place at the same time was a public enemy show in Halifax in 89. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of cool. That's a little tidbit. That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Man, oh man. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. I mean, roots run deep. Almost all of them, I think, are are or were to a certain degree hip hop fans, hip hop heads. So, what does uh, Gordon Lightfoot say? The circle is small. <laughs> I just pictured Andrew at the show in a basketball jersey with copies of the Oreo Reverse demo. You know, just handing them out. You know, <laughs> planting seeds. And Batman's fly on his guitar. All right. Okay. Next question. <clears throat> hey. I got this is more of a comment. Um, hey, I got the Cinnamon Toast Trim Crusts If Desired compilation about a week ago on 12 inch vinyl. The second track on the B side is unlisted and it's a cover of Sloan's Laying Blame, which is one of my favorite songs. I was wondering if this is the famous cover of that Eric's, uh, the famous cover that Eric's Trip did on that split seven inch with Stove Smother, Erica. Uh, Erica, loving the Eric's Trip. Uh, and Chris says, yes, yes, it is. Famous? No. Uh, <laughs> what does this remind me of? This totally. Oh, yeah. I'm just going off on a tangent again. This is this is remind me of the Barry Gibb talk, Barry Gibb talk show from SNL, and uh, when Barry says to Robin, you know, Robin, you know, do you have anything to say? And Robin goes, No, no, I don't. Uh, anyway, yes, yes, it is. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, it's so funny mentioning the Eric Strip cover. Like uh, obviously, like we were t- saying earlier, I've been following along on the Rotor Records Instagram account, and God, just like every time something's posted, I'm just like checking Discogs, and it's like, ugh, everything's like ridiculously expensive, and as it should be. I mean, like these are limited mm-hmm. releases from like 25 years ago or whatever. But uh, you know, one day maybe that'll be something I collect going going forward. I've got a bunch of them, but there's a bunch I don't have, and I think maybe going forward I'll try to collect them. You've got quite the collection going, right? I did. I found so I haven't found too much Sloan vinyl in Germany, which is reasonable because they've never really had a huge following here. There's some stuff you can get in the UK and ship over, like the the smeared uh, era, 12 inches, um, the underwhelmed uh, 12 inch, the, there you go, the I am the Cancer 12 inch with a lovely blue cover. And, uh, what, but one of the few pieces of Sloan memorabilia that I found here in Dusseldorf of all places in my own hometown was the um, Cinnamon Toast Records seven inch Sloan Eris Trip uh, with Sloan doing Stove Smother and Eris Trip doing Lame Blame. And uh, that I feel, I'm not sure what the pressing was on that. I'm sure it wasn't much higher than a few hundred. The, the, the liner itself is like green construction paper and it comes with an insert. It looks like it was drawn by hand. Like it looks like every single liner of each of the records. It obviously wasn't. It was just probably a, you know, a fairly rudimentary printing job. But it's that, you know, I, it, it, it's the Dallas Student Union green color that you would see them use for all of their flyers all through Halifax. So it's kind of funny to find that 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 level of 
Halifax nostalgia and it was in mint condition. The thing had never been taken from its sleeve ever. Like there were wow. no little nicks in, in the construction paper at all. Um, you know, I'm wondering how the hell this thing found its way from, from Halifax or from Canada in general over here. So I'm, what I'm thinking my theory is that um, there was probably a hockey player for the Düsseldorf EG uh, German hockey league team in the nineties, who was just really into music and he shipped over his entire record collection and then retired or got traded or something and then couldn't afford to ship, ship it to his next destination. So that's how that happened. That's definitely how that happened. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, but yeah, I love those songs that uh, I remember there's that DGC rarities compilation that came out in like 93. And that's where I remember hearing stove smother for the first time, like the Sloan cover of it. Yeah. And it's just, a, it's a wild song. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they use the drum loop there for, uh, for to get that Eris trip. Vibe. <laughs> and I think it's either, I think it's Chris and Patrick singing smother. Uh, I don't, I'm not, Hundred percent sure on that, but it sounds like the Is two it, of them. Yeah, I found it. I found it always a bit odd that like the Jay and Patrick combination, um, which you don't get very much on on slow material, right? So you yeah. have Jay doing stove. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't listened to this in a long time, and then Patrick jumping in all of a sudden. Then I always found that a little bit. Uh, it, it's a novelty, I guess, in our world. Yeah, totally. It's like Patrick playing bass in for for the first year, basically. It's yeah. just like what? When you find that out, you're like, oh, oh my god, right. <laughs> so cool. All right. So, next question: Who is this Sean character in the lyrics of "I Hate My Generation"? Does it have some kind of deep theological meaning, or is it just some guy the band knows? <laughs> Chris says, "Ugh, it's just some guy the band knows." How boring. Sorry. <laughs> Yep, S E A and S A I D, and there's that great version of it from the Twice Removed sessions uh, that they put out in yeah. the box set. That early yeah. version, it's just like, yeah. I mean, again, talking about different versions of songs and stuff. Like, I'm glad they ended up with the one they have, but yeah, just bizarre to hear them kind of like. I don't know if it's like a nod to Britpop or whatever, but they're doing the kind of the S A A S E A and S A I D part is much mellower and kind of like S E A N, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, re I remember i remember and i'm not sure where i read this from it might have been in the twice removed liner notes so this is maybe just like universal knowledge for anybody who's listening but i thought that this sean character was somebody that jay knew from sam the record man from when he was working at sam's on barrington um and he was kind of bugging them um might have to might have to i could have done done more research for this episode that's uh Maybe something. So if you know this, guys, then throw that onto the comment section of our Instagram post or something. And it's a very J thing to have the yeah, yeah, yeahs in there too. Okay. Next question. I don't, I don't know if this is considered a serious question or not, but oh well. I just want to know more about the Party album. Is it available through Murder Records separately? If I really have to, I'll go out and buy Okta again. But it would be so much easier if it was separate. Don't you all agree? And Chris says, yes, we've taken some heat about this party record. We wanted it to be a limited edition thing. Our American label wanted to make sure people in America, Detroit, Buffalo, would buy the American version because the Murder Records version, Canadian version, was available in the American border towns through import. We also didn't take enough time to make it... Uh, to make it worth buying as anything other than a bonus record. 
putting out the party record on its own would open us up to criticism that as a record, it doesn't stand up to our other records, which it doesn't, which I totally disagree, man. That party album is fucking killer. It's, it's so fantastic. great. Like I, it's fantastic. yeah. It, yeah. So, I mean, they can, I'm sure they have their, they have their own opinion. They made it yeah. or whatever. And thankfully here in 2020, I think it was last year. Um, I'm sorry, a couple of years ago now with the one chord box set, we get the party album standalone 12 inch. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right. And it's easy enough to find those CDs, those American uh, Octa copies, now that we have the advent of things like Discogs and the internet. So you only really had to wait, you know, 24 years uh, to find your copy, which I don't really feel is that long of a time in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it's worth it. And the, my, in my personal highlight from the party album is the is the finale, is the cover of April Wines, I Wouldn't Want to Lose Your Love, oh, which yeah. uh, it doesn't feel like a song that Sloan should be covering, but they do it, they do it fantastically. Yeah, man. I did, um, I, and I think actually there's going to be a question coming up about the party album again where they kind of go through the tracks, but um, just another memory here. I, in high school, wasn't it wasn't exactly a cool dude, um, but I was in... I was trying to be in a band around the time of getting into Sloan. Like I, that, that was kind of the thing that put me over the edge getting into music and stuff. And my buddies were in a band and they played at like, um, what would you call it? Like an assembly? Like they had like a year end assembly or something where a whole bunch of people are doing different things. And I got up and sang, <laughs> wouldn't want to lose your love, which to me, like I didn't really know the April wine version. I only knew the party album version and the buddies that I had in this band loved that album too. Um, so I got up and sang, wouldn't want to lose your love in front of my entire school. Uh, thanks to that cover from the party album. And uh, yeah, oh. it went over. Okay. <laughs> you got uh, vocal chops for miles. That's a little well, April wine right there. Right. <laughs> See, I don't know anything about April wine other than this cover. Oh my and, god! And I saw them. I saw them actually in 2015 at a festival. Actually, interestingly, on Prince Edward Island, where the red dirt flow. And uh, actually, fuck, don't edit that. But please, I'm so sorry that I just said that. Anyway, um, April wine. Uh, and right before they played, there was like a big announcement. Like, ladies and gentlemen, April wine requests that you take no photography and video of this performance. You know, like there's some big warning. Like if you if they saw a fucking camera, they're walking. You know, and it's like one guy from the original lineup. So anyway. Yeah, the drummer quit a couple of years ago and he was the coolest. Um, but uh, yeah, Canadian icons, I guess I guess they classify as a Halifax group in the same respect that Sloan classifies as a Halifax group. So, um, okay, next question. Does anyone know the boys' middle names? I've always thought Andrews... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does anyone know the boys in middle? <laughs> okay, Leave all of this. this in. Leave all of this in. Does anyone know the boys in middle names? I've always thought Andrews would be Bradley. I don't know why. <laughs> B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. Um, so Chris's answer is Andrew Walter Gibson Scott, which is one hell of a name, man. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Then that's, he just answered for the one guy. So, yeah. so who do we know? Is I believe Patrick doesn't have a middle name. Is that correct? Because obviously Chris is Christopher Michael Murphy, and Jay is John Howard Ferguson. Who's somebody yeah. on Instagram the other day called Fergie? I've kind of slipped and said Fergalicious before. I've never heard Fergie before. But anyway, there you go. Hey, it's nickname day. <laughs> and we'll figure that we'll figure out Patch, and it'll probably come to me in this recording. Maybe I'm making this up. All right. Next question. Okay, 
I totally love Sloane and all. And like, I was wondering, like, is Patrick from this planet? He is so fine. Okay, just kidding. I have a serious question about this. I wonder what she said. Like, what she mean with just kidding? Anyways, um, well, because she serious... obviously has a huge crush on Patrick, but doesn't want to blow it. You know, right? Next question. Just wondering what Sizzletine means exactly. And Chris says Sizzletine is the name of a band, and I think that's it. Except that it sounds good. <clears throat> yeah, which is cool. Sizzletine is a band. I did not know that. Cool. <laughs> I remember back on the Sloan chat, there was a girl named Sizzle Preteen, and she was legit like a 12-year-old. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I remember her being cool and everything, but uh, yeah, they ran the age gamut for sure. Nice question. When is the Sloan's album out in Japan? <laughs> Chris says, if anyone knows anything about how to put records out in Japan or get over there... Email Murder Records and tell us. <laughs> These guys were chomping at the bit, and even in late '97, and I'm sure prior to that, to get over to Japan. Yeah, and I th- you know they have a f- cult following there. I'm, I wonder what it is about bands, you know, of a certain genre and being big in Japan, and not just the Alphaville ideal of being big in Japan, but really like there's a strong indie rock scene over there, and I, you know, it must have. In, in parts to do with the way that records are distributed there um, and the way that bands are promoted because I can't, you know, I can't think of any other way that a band like Sloan would get such a following in the 90s in in Japan. And, you know, we, we, we've heard and read about the way that um, the records were released, the initial releases, and that they were re-released uh, in and around Navy Blues. So um, good promotion uh, for, for Sloan in Japan. But, you know, there are fans out there who, um, there are lifer fans out there in Japan who are still big into this band. And I would suggest that the Japanese have great taste, you know, not only in food and whatnot, but just in culture. Um, you know, the movies that are big there, like I'm a, I'm a bit of a pro wrestling guy. Sorry, everybody. But, uh, and pro wrestling is great over there. It's 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 like an art form, and you know yeah. they they appreciate and love quality art. And uh, you know you see the videos of Sloan playing over there. Like God, it's like the fucking Beatles in the sixties. Like they are just adored, and you know people are throwing yeah. themselves at them. They're going nuts. Um, just a very respect. It's like they get it. You know that culture gets yeah. it. Okay, and we we all know that Sloan have been out there a few times now and have played and uh, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess ever since the whole family thing uh, started for the band, that that's not been a regular destination on their tours. But just like the next tour will be stopping in Germany, um, let's hope that the Japanese fans get some love in the next few years. Mm-hmm. All right, next question. How can you get Sloan B-sides? I've looked everywhere. They don't seem to sell them through Murder Records. If anyone has any info, please tell me. And Chris responds, we will probably be putting some kind of B-sides comp out at some point. Maybe next year? He's referring to 1998 here. Now, when would a B-sides comp eventually hit us? Would this be... 2011. So the digital B-sides win compilation, You know, it only took... 15, 14 to 15 years from the original question for the band to pull through. So again, I feel as though this is a reasonable expectation on the Sloan fans timeline. And the guys were busy. I mean, this is fucking 1997 here. They got, they got a lot of shit going on over the next couple of years. 
Yeah. So, what they forget, forget B-side. They've got they've got like full length albums of new fucking awesome material coming out. So anyway, I, well, I yeah, you know, I forgive them. Come on. Exactly. What they did do though was they cranked out some of their best B sides in the next three to four years. So this is ninety seven. We have what do we have? Girl in case, uh, aka glad to summer's be my, here. Summer's my season summer's coming season. out. Yeah. Um, it's even though I'm pretty scene. together. Even though it was never heard the end of it, oh, um, okay. Helen and Had Enough were pretty together. Uh, Step on a Jean and Dirty Nails were kind of in that um, action-packed era. So really, just like killer tracks, where you notice that they weren't really B-sides per se. They're mm-hmm. bonus tracks that either didn't fit into the material of the album that came out um, stylistically. Or were included as bonus tracks for a Japanese release. So again, Japanese fans getting all the love. But it, it became increasingly easy to find B-sides in the late 90s and early 2000s, A, because of the advent of internet. Um, so anybody, you know, somebody you you know on the Sloan message board is going to hook you up with this, you know, at least with an MP3 or something. Um, and B, you know, it's easier to find a copy of Japanese between the bridges on eBay now that eBay has been invented. So, um, good news for whoever asked this question in '97. Didn't need to wait until 2011 yeah, to hear, you know, Helen. The guys were going to lovingly take the next 15 years to make sure that that B sides comp would be just like endless in quality. So there you go. Why and now they're putting it out on vinyl. So here, yeah, it's coming out on vinyl, but it's really hard to find. So you know, hey, I was just wondering what age the guys started playing in bands and their separate instruments. And Chris uh, responds, I played my first show at a coffee house at my high school in 1985, but those were all covers. I played in a band that wrote all their own songs called Whiteout. Yeah, in April 86, I was the bass player. We were into American hardcore, but it was pretty li- uh, lightweight. I met Jay in 1987, which I believe is November. He, I know that they met in later 87, because in I remember November 97, it was like the 10-year anniversary of them playing together or something like that. So yeah. Later yeah. 87. Um, I met Jay in 1987, and he was in a band called the deluxe boys all right deluxe boys and they played originals and covers he was into rem in those days and probably at the at the time of this writing was still very much into rem sure yeah and probably still is uh jay and i played in a band called carney lake road from october 87 there you go i just answered my own question till march 1990 we were into the minutemen and led zeppelin i personally was into no means no after seeing them in montreal in 1986 and it changed my life Mm. i was the drummer and attempting to be a little too funky i'm a little embarrassed to say jay was the guitar player and was more playerly uh, then, to say the least. Uh, I played with Andrew in a band after that, which had several names. Cuddly, Close Line, Right Arm, The Despots, and Furious George, which is my favorite pre-song band. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I was the bass player and he was the drummer. I was teaching him to play the drums. His dad had played in a Dixieland band, so Andrew had... Uh, his drum kit in no time he got really good he was already a good guitar player he played a lot like bob mold and a fosker do he had played guitar in a rap group at his high school talent show which aired on cable access station in halifax the group was called oreo reverse this is definitely the first time i'd heard of oreo reverse is this q a because it featured a black guy and two white guys Patrick had been playing in a band called Happy Co. before he joined Sloan. He played in various hardcore bands before that, including The Ripping Convulsions. Both were with Cliff Gibb, now of Thrush Hermit, and another group that Cliff managed to avoid called Prosecutor. Uh, I think they meant Persecutor. (laughs) 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, this, so I mean, this is really just, this is really just, um, what, you know, this is like the preamble to has not been the same in four paragraphs, but, um, the, on the checklist of any, um, self-respecting Sloan fans, uh, dream listens would be a recording of anything done by happy co because i don't think we've ever heard any evidence of this band uh, and patrick on- sort of dropped hints that it's a dinosaur junior kind of band you know i, I would yeah, love to hear that and cliff yeah. gibb on i assume cliff gibb is playing drums in that band um, yeah and, and hats off to that sure and then and then of course the um the famous oreo reverse talent show um from from andrew's high school days on uh, cable access television so chris has hinted that he might have a copy on vhs if oh, this is the case it. it's the lifelong it. mission of Sloancast to get oreo reverse out of obscurity and onto youtube i will put my street address out there in the world if somebody wants to drop a copy of that tape in my fucking mailbox please <sighs> just tap your nose the idea, okay. the, the idea of um andrew playing rockabilly guitar in a hip hop trio is possibly <laughs> the icing on the cake of this man's image. <laughs> and do you think he has like the rockabilly stray cats haircut? Like the he slick on the sides? I mean, like maybe in this time he had that. Yeah. If, and if he's playing, he's the, playing like a giant hollow body or something. If you look at the t-shirt that the band put out alongside the hardcore oh, uh, yeah. release, there's the, there's images of the band in an in and around 1985 right and right. i think andrew is drinking a liter of milk like directly from the carton and he kind of got the kind of got the upwards hairstyle oh, so love it. you know it would be, it would be easy enough to put that into a pompadour but um <laughs> you know I, for for the sake of um continuity i like how i like the genesis of this band um on so many levels and i like the idea of um you know, just sort of like the high school music scene. Cause I, you know, I know you, you were mentioning this earlier and I was also involved to a certain extent. Um, and Chris mentioning a coffee house at high school. Cause that was actually also my first like band gig. I'd done a, a bunch of stuff with, a, with a buddy of mine as a duet and we did whatever we did. Like, well, we started busking in the halls and I think we earned just from, 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 from high school students with really poor discretion. I think we earned like $40 a week on loonies or something, just busking. <laughs> and, uh, we, uh, we ended up doing, uh, musical accompaniment to like school plays and stuff. Uh, and then we formed a band and it was called Top Gun and or the top gun group as the the full version of the band's name and it was a southern rock band <laughs> and, and our first coffee house um appearance i think we did a couple of them but our first uh, maryville high school um coffee house appearance the set list included um a kind of southern rockified version of eric clapton's layla so like the unplugged version but then taken back to sort of a, a more southern rock level we did Leonard Skinner's Give Me Three Steps. And we did the Allman Brothers band Statesboro Blues with my buddy Jacob on slide guitar. And like we bit way we bit off way more than we can chew with that one. He pulled it off really well, but I'm happy that there's well, there might be a recording of that hanging around somewhere, but I'm happy that there's little evidence of my musical career. We went on to do really nothing much more. I think we had a couple of more shows and that was it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and yeah, I, I, I too started at a high school coffee house. I think my first official performance in front of anybody was myself and my buddy Chris, who was actually the same guy who invited me to that first Sloan show, interestingly enough. Um, <clears throat> so it would have been shortly after that, I want to say. And uh, we were, we called ourselves the Fanatics because that was um, the original band name for the band ocean color scene who are an awesome right. brit band from, kind of from the mid 90s and all we did was ocean color scene like b-sides <laughs> which obviously nobody in toronto or in town ontario rather knew and uh, so we passed them off as our own songs and people were like god these fucking songs are fantastic like, yeah this next one's called huckleberry grove enjoy it anyway <laughs> <laughs> are you meaning to tell me you guys didn't have any leonard skinner on your set list <laughs> i don't think ocean color scene covered leonard skinner so no all right next question what is sloan's favorite bands jay and i chris uh, are big into stereo lab which i think was the reference i was trying to make earlier about that alt version of hate my generation uh where they're right. kind of singing the sea and said part look a little more gently i want to yeah, say that yeah, that's yeah. like a stereo lab nod andrew jay and i yeah, love God. guided by voices patrick is big into david bowie and acdc i'm still a big kiss fan patrick and i share a love of punk and american hardcore andrew is liking the kinks and the sonics Andrew and i were huge public enemy fans when we first met we like lots of things uh and it's always changing so i can't exactly say what those lads are into at the moment i like how he um mentions here that patrick had a has has a big love for uh david bowie which you don't really hear um on the top of the standard lists of patrick's musical influences but you can i can hear in a lot of patrick's stuff sort of a new wave late 70s early 80s um joy division david bowie um even like going back a little bit further glam rock type influence and it's nice to have that formalized here and of course um there's we have the the instance of patrick leading the cover on i think it was done on a live youtube channel uh a few years back of gary newman's cars um which of course takes right. direct direct influence from Kraftwerk, who are from Düsseldorf, by the way. Um, so, you know, it, again, it comes full circle, but you can hear some of these influences. And Patrick then did a little interview later on about um, him being a kid and having to save up for Gary Newman's Cars album, which I don't know the name of. It might just be Cars. Um, and sort of speaking to that. So Patrick um, will not, I think, talk about his influences elaborately in many ways. But once he goes down that rabbit hole, he can pull out some pretty interesting stuff. Well, we should ask him. They've got that. Uh, he's got another solo show coming up in January 2021. So we'll, let's see for those listening in the future. Did, did we ask the question and did he answer it? Next question. What exactly is Sloan's relation to Phonocomb? And Chris says, Dallas Good plays in Phonocomb and the Sadies. Andrew also plays for the Sadies. So, yeah, I've never heard of Phonocomb, and this obviously must have gone nowhere. But uh, Yeah, this is I'm in, way over our heads. Um, this is somebody who wanted to show off. But we talked about the Sadies on an earlier episode and uh, the ability to find Sadies material with Andrew's work on it. And we talked about, they have a rarities compilation from the beginning of their career. So 94 through maybe 97 and Andrew is doing a lot of the drumming on that one. So if you really want to hear Andrew on other bands work, then check out um, the Sadies rarities compilation. This was done, this Q and a was done in late 97 
meaning that Chris is talking about Andrew being in the 80s in the present tense. He apparently had an affiliation with a band for a little bit longer than was purported. Like I thought that it was really just a thing when when they were breaking up in 95. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is done from 97 perspective two years later, and, and Chris is still saying, oh yeah, Andrew's in the 80s. So I know that Andrew yeah. played on recordings of the Sadies, I think, until 96, 97. Um, and that's interesting to to point out. It is possible to be in multiple bands at once. Yeah, and I think there was also, I, I, Andrew mentions it during the I&I, uh, that he was in a band called The Maker's Mark, which I think has to do with some of the guys in the Sadies as well. I don't know if that's just a different configuration of the band members with different people. Yeah. Um, that's another band I remember. I think it was the Much Music Spotlight, which was like a favorite show of mine back in the day. And they would, at the beginning of the show, have just like kind of like a little viz of like information about the band, like, you know, formed in 92, first album is smeared, da da da, TGC. And one of the um, little things at the end of it was like, you know, have. Members have also played inside projects such as Super Friends, The Sadies, and The Maker's Mark. And I remember seeing that and being like, what the fuck is The Maker's Mark? And uh, yeah, once again, like the the band The Brown Belts, just a band that kind of, I have no idea what that was, what it was about, where it went, if there are any recordings or anything, or if it's just like a fun thing to do. But yeah, to see these yeah. names documented is kind of funny. Um considering they perhaps totally. were just like a blip on the radar. Right. And the Sadie's now, of course, being renowned for uh, Dallas Good almost having a light fixture fall on him at a show in Halifax. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, next question. Why does Sloan sometimes put the end of one song at the beginning of their videos? Everything you've done wrong in the lines you amend, for example. Good question. And uh, Chris says, so people like you will ask. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I would like to continue doing that, and they do. We have several songwriters, and it's hard to get a video for everyone on the record those little bits allow us to show that we are multi-dimensional videos are expensive and if if you only make one or two then that's all a lot of people think you're about if we could have done a whole video for a side wins or junior panthers we probably would have but the costs are prohibitive they do do that on she says what she means they've got the little outro uh the Mm. horn outro for sinking ships yeah i like to think that the a side wins video would just be that beginning clip of andrew from everything you've done wrong like that whole video just exists as him in that same outfit in that space playing that song for that same wedding crowd you know he's just singing it at the piano and you don't really see anybody else and then he kind of finishes the song stands up comes forward and then they play everything you've done wrong in my mind that's like a perfect uh, video for that would be my pitch <laughs> if i could go back in time um and the junior panthers my god like what would be like obviously it would have to be jay in a uh, base at a basement dance and he's like half looking around a corner and there's like a slow motion strobe going off in his face and you're way more into cinematography than i am it would be um, like a like a like a sort of like a take on the what was that local rabbits video uh high school hierarchy where they're at like a frat house or something yeah. it's like pete elkis is playing like the the uh, captain of the football team and he's wearing the junior Panthers football Jersey. And Jay's very jealous of the girl he's dancing with. Anyway, whatever I'm going off on a tangent. Sorry guys. (laughs) All right. Fan, fan fantasy, fan fiction. Do the boys from Sloan have any siblings? Could you possible tell us their names and ages if possible? (laughs) Bye bye. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so as of 1997, Jay is an only child. God love him. Chris has one sister, Allison, age 25. Patrick has one sister, Danielle, who is also 25 or 26. Andrew has a sister, Pam, age 33 or 34, and a sister, Christine, age 32. Maybe Andrew will lend one of his sisters to Jay. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, all right, cool. 
Nice question. When Sloan was on Rita and Friends, RIP, Jay was wearing a button and I was wondering what was on it. My friend says it looks like a P. Please help. I don't remember that button, but it should have read, please help. <laughs> yeah, I got to look back at that Rita and Friends footage now. Oh my they, play, God. Uh, they play I Hate My Generation on that, don't they? You know, I'll, I'll use this moment to regale our uh, our non-Canadian uh, listeners uh, about Rita and Friends. Rita McNeil was a Canadian singer of, I would put her in like the folk country genre, sort of. I'm not sure what to say. It's sort of like a TV crooner genre, but she was, um, she had great lungs and um, was a TV host to boot who did sort of a Johnny Cash a Johnny Cash style variety show featuring mostly Canadian content. So I'm sure that Anne Murray was on there a few times speaking of Johnny Cash and, uh, she being from, from the East coast, I think she's from Cape Breton had Sloan on the show at least two or three times, uh, was really supportive of the band's career or at least her, you know, her, her production company was, and uh, you can find some of the material on YouTube. So just check out Sloan, Rita, and Friends. Those are some great performances from, I want to say, maybe between 94 and 97-ish. Uh, yeah. I want to say that the, I'm watching now the uh, Rita and Friends Everything You've Done Wrong footage, which I'm sure is one of a couple of times. Andrew looks like he's wearing his Sadie's outfit. Like I don't know if he just came from a Sadie's gig or was on his way to. Um, but this is the guys like they are circa Lines You Men video. Sloan, just so everybody yeah. kind of has a visual yeah. there. It's on YouTube, so you can all go look it up. I'm going to wager that Jay is wearing his Keith Richards pen. The little sort that with the red image on it. That's what it looks like to me. Um, okay. But I, I could be corrected. And All there's right. the Andy Cibola drum kit. There it is. All right. Man, man. Uh, classic era. How can the members of Sloan dedicate enough time to their own great band while running a record company at the same time? Is it affecting the rate of their success here in the States? <laughs> right. <laughs> Chris says, no, we don't do enough hands-on work to keep us from doing other things that we should. For me, I can feel productive during the band's downtime by doing various things. Colin and Mark do a lot there. And I think he's obviously referring to murder records. Yeah. Yeah, sure. If anything, guys, um, doing stuff for murder is going to help their success in the States. Oh, nice question is a, is a juicy one. Um, I didn't realize that this was on the FAQ. Are there any releases from Happy Co. available? And Chris says, hey, a Happy Co. researcher. <laughs> I think Cliff Gibb is the archivist there. Nothing is available. Sorry. So yeah, nice. we got to tap old Cliff Gibb for some uh, Happy Co. For some happy uh, Co. Recordings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe some pictures too. Okay. Yeah. I think the first time I heard of Happy Co. Just to put it in context was there's the Thrush Hermit learned to party video that they put out like right when they were yeah. breaking up. And yeah. as they go through the band, they're kind of talking about everybody and they say, Cliff Gibb played in Happy Co. with Patrick Pentland and Melanie LaRussinac, you know, and I was just like, what Happy Co. There's a band with Patrick Priest Sloan. Holy shit. You know, anyway, I, I can't recall if that was the phase of his musical career in which Patrick had a, sort of the flock of seagulls haircut. Um, or if that was in ripping convulsions, I feel as though that might've been more in the ripping convulsions era. I, I um, agree. I think it was more convulsions. And I, I, I picture, I've always pictured happy co being Patrick circa like early Sloan. Yeah, sure. Maybe it was more, maybe it was also more of the prosecutor era. <laughs> yeah. Prosecutor. <laughs> prosecutor. Um, cool. Next question. I'm wondering what bands 
and what types of music did the Sloan boys listen to when they were youngins, and what type of music influenced their own rock, uh, their own work. Chris says, my mother loved Joni Mitchell and my dad loved George Jones. Jay was a big AM radio fan as a young kid. Jay and I were both turned on to Kiss. Yeah, (laughs) both Jay and I were both turned on to Kiss by our babysitters. Andrew's dad played jazz. Patrick's dad played keyboards in various cover bands in Ireland in the 60s and familiarized Patrick with Chicago, among others. Jay uh, got a job at a record store when he was 12 or 14 and got turned on to everything and started the record collection he's so famous for. Andrew's older sister was into hard rock like Mott the Hoople, etc., and got him going on British metal. I saw the video for Whip It in 1981 and freaked out. Man, me too, man. Uh, awesome. I saw it much later, but anyway, again, I can be more specific about myself here. I'm trying to answer uh, this in a way I haven't before. That's yeah, fantastic. very cool. And when he mentions John Joni Mitchell, like uh, talking about B-sides and stuff, and with the release of that B-sides win, 12-inch, the first one, um, I'm hoping that at some point among these releases we get a case of you I don't know if that'll be available, you know, considering oh, if there's it. a copyright from Johnny Mitchell or something. Vinyl. Oh God, I would love it. And, 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 and here's a great example. I was thinking about this when I listened to that more recently, because if you listen to the Joni Mitchell original, um, these songs are very dissimilar. Like it's not as though Sloan kind of okay. went in just yeah. sort of, you know, yeah. rocked out her version of the song. Like this is the mark of a great band, a band who can take a cover song an original rather and just completely make it their own yeah. like that case yeah. of you song could be a sloan song and for oh. me i personally prefer to the original i think it's you know much more catchy yeah. and kind of more focused and yeah. yeah i've always loved that case of you cover just fantastic yeah. it's a great representation of their style at that point in time it's sort of grungy it's got some some nice fuzz effects on the guitars i admittedly not a huge Joni mitchell fan i think i like i acknowledge her influence on music in general uh i'm not going to sit down and listen to blue you know weekly or something but the um i like how they just take the song and put it like give it a bit of tempo and give it a bit of flair and um you know, this is a point in time in which Joni was really garnering accolades for her lifetime work. And, you know, what better way to be part of that discussion than to cover one of her best songs. So, um, love that. I'd love to hear it on vinyl, but I assume that what you mentioned about the publishing, uh, copyright sort of, um, issue would prevent that from, from happening anytime soon. We'll see. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also, you know, cued it out by the idea of Chris taking his copy of their cover home and playing it for his mom and kind of watching her react. Yeah. And, you know, that's yeah. Um, some yeah. other interesting things here, like, um, Patrick p- p- being familiarized with Chicago. Here's another one that we've never, I mean, I don't know that Chicago, the band has necessarily influenced Patrick in a direct way, but it's interesting that their name checked here. Right, I'll yeah. be honest. I love Peter Cetera. I'm just going to put it out there. Anyway, he's got the he's got some chops he's got some chops okay next question you should all have memorized this by now but we'll we'll do it anyways what is the date of birth for each of the members and chris says jay is october 14th 1968 chris november 7th 68 patrick september 20th 69 i think andrew november 15th 69 67 um so yeah, let's just put those in your calendar if they're not not already in there, guys. And uh, yeah, shoot those birthday messages on over when appropriate. It's also fun to note here that 
it, you know, Patrick and Andrew are almost two years apart. And obviously when you're an adult, that's not a big deal. Like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. age gap or whatever. But when you're younger, especially in your late teens, early twenties, as these guys were when the band started two years is a fucking lifetime. Um, so it's interesting to think of that dynamic. Like they talk in the early footage about, actually they mentioned on the murder records podcast recently that, you know, Patrick and Andrew roomed together originally because they both smoked yeah. at the time. Um, yeah. so it's just a funny, you know, it's, it's funny now to think back in retrospect about those two guys being two years apart and potentially at that time in the early twenties being worlds apart as people, yeah. um, just thrown together in this band. And, uh, I feel like I kind of get that impression more and more as I look back at that early footage and stuff and see, hear both those early interviews in those early days uh that would be some i would love i mean obviously we have dreams of you know potentially interviewing the guys on this podcast and in 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 my fantasy we interview them about just themselves and not about sloan at all just like them personally like birth to sloan because that story's yeah. not really told um yeah. but yeah i i would love to delve deeper into those early pre-smeared sloan days like that just like sloan year one and just do like 10 episodes anyway yeah. So what just just as a preview, um, when we started this podcast, we did a list of rudimentary dream topics that we'd like to cover. And one of the topics would be sort of a Halifax 1990-1991 episode. So I know that we've already reached out to a bit of to some talent to to help us on that episode. So stay tuned for that one. We'll probably be doing that at some point um, in the new year, but um, don't press us on timing. That's a, that's okay. important to mention. If anybody is listening, and thank you for listening, if you're still with us in this episode, which is uh, known in the biz as a filler episode, if anybody was a part of that first gen of Sloan fans, like seeing them before smeared and kind of up until the twice removed release, uh, even up till one quarter to another, like if you're out there and you have a fan story and if you have recollections of seeing them early on and blah blah blah, uh, we would love to talk to you. So please reach out. Uh, even if you just kind of give us a little information on Instagram that we can read into the show, that would be awesome. Um, anyway, right. move along. All right, next question. What is the silver thing on top of the piano on the front cover of Okta? It looks like my dad's old stereo. Does anyone know? <laughs> and Chris says, it's a stereo amplifier. I love this kind of question. It belongs to me, and it was just there to create different levels in the photo, I think. I love this question, too. And I wonder if Chris still has the stereo amplifier, and if he were to take a photo of it and post it to his Instagram stories, you know. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I never really even noticed. I mean, I've, I've looked at the cover of One Chord a gajillion times. And, uh, yeah, noticing that I think they're sitting at a piano. I mean, I noticed in the One Chord booklet, they've got the kind of outtake photos, and you can kind of see a bit more of what's in frame. Obviously, Jay is holding the guitar, which was a... He's holding his Fender Mustang, which I think is the pearl-colored Mustang with the, with the uh, red pickguard. There you go. Awesome. Uh, knew I could count on you. And yeah, they're sitting at a piano and they've got that amp, that uh, stereo up on top of it. So very cool. Yeah. All right. Next question. Is there a Sloan compilation video available for home purchase? Will a Sloan release their alternate alternate version of the video of people of the sky on much music? And Chris says, uh, this is another thing we talk about doing complete with that people of the sky video you're talking about that was filmed on the same day as coax me. Um, and yeah, we would actually get that in 99. I want to say 99, 2000 is when, uh, secondhand views came out. Yeah, that's right. VHS. Um, cool. Next question. I heard that Chris and Andrew are former art students. My question is what kind of art training 
was it that they had as art is my passion? When I saw them in Waterloo, I painted a picture of Sloan that summer and got them all to sign it. Chris called me a Picardo in the making. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably the Waterloo show that I was at, by the way, that the person's mentioning. Uh, and Chris says, Andrew went to the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, NASCAD, for a few years and has a couple of credits short of his degree. While he was there, he learned to paint. I went to NASCAD uh, for just just short of two years following getting my BA at Dalhousie. While I was at Dal, I learned nothing and met no one. While I was at NASCAD, I learned that art history is, is a good way to learn history. As for my art training, I did very little. I did learn how to edit video and met some people I still know. I do recommend the school, though. I was more interested in the band the whole time I was there. Yeah. And thank God. I like how NASCAD is really central to the band's um, to the band's beginning and you know it's not like this is an art band or anything you know two of the members weren't at nascad but their first show was at nascad mm. and uh, a lot of the friends that they're referencing in some of their earlier um musical stories were, were art students and i think like well we know that Catherine stockhausen went to went to nascad for photography and you know that people just peripheral to the band's history um started there so I, you know, Halifax um, is a is a college town, is a university town, and they're immensely proud of their of their art institute. Um, Gerhard Richter, actually, the one the German painter um, from Dresden, uh, actually taught there, I think, for a couple of years. So there's some pictures of this like immensely huge artist, at least in in, in sort of a modern contemporary German art um, world, on. You know Barrington Street, <laughs> which I find so interesting. Anyways, NASCAD. Um, my NASCAD thing, and whenever I think about NASCAD, I have to think about there's a professor in NASCAD, and he might not be there anymore because this story is probably generations old. But he used to require that first year photography students go down to the Halifax Grain Elevator um, near um, near the 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 end of the peninsula at, at the bottom, and take artful pictures of the Halifax grain elevator. So, you know, um, there are a lot of would-be artists out there uh, every year in groups of 30 taking the exact same picture. And I know that sort of first-year art reviews for NASCAD are just full of the exact same picture year after year after year. So that's the that's like my NASCAD anecdote. I love it. And again, getting back to the Murder Records Instagram page where Chris has been posting a lot of the artwork through the years of the seven inch singles and stuff. Um, you know, Chris has mentioned the art annuals that they've kind of borrowed from, which I think are German art annuals, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the only reason under the sun's in Pan of Seven Inch. And of course, I think the cover for one chord is like a blues poster. What yeah, else? Right. Yeah. Blues yeah. Jazz, uh, obviously, sure. Navy Blues, the cover of Navy Blues and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So I would love to get my hands on one of these books, or if there are multiple books, I would, you know, just pour over the awesome artwork and imagery. Yeah. All right. Next question. Is there any relation between Sloan's Chris Murphy and the super friends, Matt Murphy? And Chris says, only that we're best buds. I was with him today. I have lied, fibbed to people that were brothers, but the truth is we're not. Right. Uh, although Chris, I feel uh, he kind of looks like that other guy, Austin. What's his name? Uh, from, Charles Austin. From the Super Friends. Yeah, he kind of. I feel so. Chris kind of looks like Charles Austin from the Super Friends. They had a little bit of the same <laughs> aesthetic going on in the mid nineties. Sure, <laughs> a little bit of a DNA swap, perhaps. 
I always kind of felt like, I mean, no disrespect to Charles if he's listening to this, he probably isn't, but he always kind of looked like the nerdy guy in Super Friends, you know? Right. Um, whereas I would suggest that, well, Chris has nerd things about him like he's just wearing he's wearing glasses or whatever but you know i think he's more like a rocking dude you know like he kind of and well, i mean his stage performance and stuff he just kind of portrays himself a little more like i don't know yeah. like a like a flamboyant lead singer paul stanley type whereas charles just sort of seems even like the the, the charles songs like the uh, rescue us from boredom and stuff are very yeah. nasal and kind of whatever anyway i don't mean to shit on charles austin hello <laughs> Uh, if you're listening, we're we're immensely sorry. We'll Subscribe. do a Super Friends episode soon. I love mock-up scale down slideshow. Yeah, totally. Uh, all right, next question. I was wondering, is Chris still going out with Laura Borealis? Just for reference, this is late '97. He says, "Nope," but we're still friendly. Uh, we don't hang out, but I always laugh with her when I see her. She's in a band called. Uh, it's either called it's Crapo or Crapo, probably Crapo, C R A P P O. It's spelled I, like I'm gonna Capo, hope it's Crapo, uh, like Gabo, <laughs> uh, that play around Toronto at times. Laura Borealis is sort of a name on that um, bespoken uh, Halifax scene, was the inspiration, of course, for Median Strip on Smeared. Yeah, she wrote uh, from the liners. She wrote the book "Inherit the Median Strip," and then also a book called "Dames Dames," which Chris was inspired to write "Shame Shame" about. So th- this one, guys, again, common knowledge. We'll read it anyways. Call me stupid, but exactly how did Sloan get their name? They never seem to mention it, even in early interviews. And Chris says, "Oh, they mentioned it. Believe me, it was the nickname of our friend uh, of a friend of ours, Jason Larson, who graces the cover of Peppermint. His boss could not remember his name and referred to him as the Slow One or Sloan. The cover of Peppermint may even be a potential have been a potential cover for the Carney Lake Road album that never came out. I forget. That's just fantastic. That's just like mind blowing to me too. That uh, that they just had like interesting artwork kind of hanging around and and that Peppermint cover was sort of." in the can potentially for an Carney Lake Road album, just sort of reusing yeah. a, a good idea. Um, yeah. yeah, crazy. Okay, we get to the last question. Um, and here's some <laughs> more information about Laura Borealis. Here we go. Um, I'm sorry if this is a dumb question, but who's Laura Borealis and why is she mentioned, quoted in two songs, Shame Shame and Median Strip? It's funny, all of these questioners are a little like, I'm so sorry that I'm a stupid idiot, but, uh, you know. Um, Super deprecating, super self-deprecating. Pre-search machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as Chris says here, uh, as mentioned before, Laura was an old girlfriend of mine who I would have described as a friend of the band, except that someone asked if she and I were still going out. <laughs> she went to NASCAD too and wrote some books, Inherit the Median Strip and Dames Dames that were referenced in Median Strip and Shame Shame, respectively. I don't know any of her uh, recent writings she may have. All right. Yeah. That feels like a lot of Laura Borealis content to end this podcast. <laughs> Maybe she's available for uh, to be a guest or something. I'm not sure. Um, we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Yeah, that's. And I've, uh, I've always been. I've always, I've always wondered too. I mean, I have to. If her real name is Laura Borealis, that is one hell of a name. Like kudos to her parents. I've always assumed it's not, but I could be wrong. All right, guys. Well, you know, it looks as though the FAQ just stopped with that last question so um as was the style at that point in time there's a lot of uh, questions that continue to be raised by the um completeness of this faq but maybe rob what what are your thoughts looking back on some of the questions that you've seen posed in this faq from 1997 from a from a 2020 perspective 
I have to say that I have so many questions still unanswered. So, I mean, there needs to be another one of these big FAQs, you know? Um, and, and obviously the guys, like when Chris was doing his four solo shows, he answered questions, but it, you know, I don't know that any of those questions went particularly deep. Like I loved some of the insights that he had, like, um, uh, was it, autobiography or God, what fucking song was it? I think it was autobiography where he did a version of it. That sounds like a sea shanty or whatever. Nothing left to make make me want to say, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So I loved that. Yeah, I love that insight that on his solo show he included that nothing left to make me want to stay could also be sung like a sea shanty. You know, there yeah. are those who live their lives afraid of there's all So, you know, I love that insight, but I mean, God, I it's, you know, this band's almost 30 years old as of this coming year and mm. still so much we don't know about them and so much that I'm interested to know. And, uh, you know, and hopefully that's what this show will help provide in a way and other than, you know, the guys' various social media platforms and the yeah. events that they do but yeah i mean this would be a good time to just mention again to everybody listening once again thank you for listening but uh, if you have questions you want answered you know we can try our best to get one for you and or if you have opinions about things or if you want to come on the show and chat about a specific topic or want to see a topic raised or somebody appear as a guest you know please reach out and let us know we're looking for content all the time guys and you don't have to be in the inner circle of uh sloan acquaintances or anything to uh to guest on this show if you have a cool story we'd love to cut that into one of our episodes so please reach out to us we're always looking for new insights and new content mm-hmm. um, i hope that you found this entertaining i certainly did um some of my key takeaways from this 97 faq are the fact that patrick was heavily influenced by david bowie well, but, but you know the thing that I appreciate the most about this type of resource is the fact that this band is you know it, it's so longevious and there's so much that you can dig down on in in in, uh, in this band's history. But we don't have like the one definitive resource, so we don't have like a Lewison for 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 Sloan. So we're for for our research for this podcast, we're dealing a lot with just what we know in the back of our heads from having <laughs> read all kinds of shit over the years. Which is why we're wrong sometimes. Which is why we're wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> but but on the other hand, we have to kind of deal with sort of first hand accounts from the band uh, from the band itself. So this type of resource is just gold for us. And hopefully, if you have any types of materials like this from the past, you know, screenshots of old websites, whatever, fire them over because we're looking for it. Yeah, and it, and it it bears repeating or bears mentioning rather that uh, you know if you have a, an old merch item like a, a shirt from back in the day or an old poster or an autographed item or something like that, send it our way too. We'd love to post it on the Instagram or something, and maybe it'll spark a conversation or something thing um so we'd love to see that stuff too there's a ton of that stuff out in the wild and it's always rad to see i remember when i was uh prior to doing the blue suit ron episode when i went over to hang out at his apartment um i was just like floored by some of the stuff he had like autographed items and cool little slow like pictures and little memorabilia and stuff so it's always awesome to see somebody's other somebody else's kind of another hardcore fan even if somebody's a casual fan but you know somebody's collection really cool to see that stuff Absolutely. So send us your picks mm-hmm. and send us your opinions 
And mm-hmm. we're looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, our next episode will be coming out soon, and we hope to have some cool guests for you in the near future. So, Absolutely. yeah, like, share, subscribe, all the good stuff, comment, leave a review if you're listening uh, on a podcast that has reviews. And uh, we'll see you next time on the show. Keep sloning. Keep sloning, guys. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs>